Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for a biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly interviews Ty Sigley, author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, published by St. Martin's Press in January 2021. With Kitty Kelly, retired Army Brigadier General and history professor Ty Sigley talks about Confederate General Robert E. Lee and the Lost Cause myth. Well, Professor. Would you define for us what this lost cause is? Absolutely. If you imagine that the Southern states, the white Southerners, went to war to preserve and expand the institution of slavery, not just in the Southern states, but also to California, Mexico, Latin America, the Caribbean. They sowed the wind and they reaped the whirlwind. They didn't just lose, they were destroyed. And so they had to come up with an alternate way of explaining this catastrophic destruction of their slave society. So they created this new myth, this lie about themselves and about the war. And the first part of that lie is that the war wasn't fought over slavery. Well, that's just absolutely not true. This war is 100% about slavery. The second part is that enslaved people were happy in their condition, which is a monstrous lie. Slavery featured the lash, rape, and selling families apart for profit. It was the worst system, uh, an immoral system. The third is that some generals like Ulysses S. Grant was a butcher and a drunk. In fact, Grant was the greatest soldier to have ever worn army blue. Confederate soldiers were the greatest soldiers ever. Well, if they were the greatest soldiers ever, then why did they lose? (laughs) Um, Post-war reconstruction was an evil and a failure. Well, no. In fact, it was an attempt at biracial democracy, featured the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which provided citizenship to all men. In fact, 2,000 Black men served honorably in elected positions during that time. And at the top of the lost cause myth is the marble man, the Christ figure, Robert E. Lee, the greatest soldier who ever lived, the greatest man who ever lived. And we can talk more about Lee later on, but I argue that this is just false. And what it did, though, what this lost cause did, Kitty, was to reinforce a system of white supremacy. So if you can think of lost causes, the ideological foundation, along with segregation laws, Jim Crow, white terror, lynching, black disenfranchisement, and Confederate monuments, these are the pillars of a white supremacist society, and the lost cause is its ideological foundation. What do you think we can do to change that? I think the part of it is, is what we are doing, which is more history. I don't want less history. I want more. I want to have those stories that were hidden from me as a child growing up in Virginia, Georgia, to be talked about, to talk about the heroes that we should have, like Samuel Tucker of Alexandria, who led the first sit-in protest in Alexandria City Library in the 1930s. Uh, Frederick Douglass, W.B. Du Bois. We need new heroes. We need to be honest. And we can handle it as Americans. The thing that kills me is that some people say, listen, we don't want to talk about this bad part of our past. But the only way to ensure that we don't have a racist future is to first engage with and understand our racist past. 
Hi, you went through a real evolution. You were born in Virginia. You grew up believing in Robert E. Lee as a hero, as a martyr. How did you come full circle? Because your book is built on research and you certainly have invested academic scholarship in this book. You pull documents. I was quite shocked to read really how vicious and evil Robert E. Lee was. So please explain the evolution. Well, the evolution starts, I think, uh, graduated from college and going in the army. So I raised my right hand, gave the oath of office, and became an army officer. And that wasn't my identity when I first came in. I, be I was a Virginia gentleman. But over time, serving in the army, I became, my identity was army officer. So that's the first thing. The second thing was I married well. And my wife was incapable of lying. And I grew up on a series of lies. So being with her helped me question that, particularly when she looked at Lee Chapel at Washington Lee University and saw Lee on the altar. That was the second thing. So the third thing was when I was at West Point and I was walking one day past the barracks. Our barracks at West Point are named after our greatest heroes in American military history. So I went by Eisenhower barracks, by Pershing barracks, World War I, by Grant barracks. And then I got to Lee barracks and I stopped and looked at that sign. And I wondered, why is there something at West Point, the United States Military Academy, named after Lee? I understood Washington and Lee University, but not that. So I went into the archives. And what I found is what changed me. What I found was that in the 19th century, West Point was an anti-Confederate monument. It banished Confederates as traitors. And I never thought of them as that. Our cemetery did not have any Confederates. Our memorials didn't have them. And so then I said, well, why, when did they come? They came in the 1930s and 1950s and 1970s. That's when Confederate monuments came to West Point. It was a reaction to integration. And that made me so angry, Kitty, that I had bought into this lie. And then between those three things, uh, that's what really changed me. And, and, and I How just couldn't... did your students at West Point take this? Uh, eventually, very well. Initially, it was more of a, uh, I had to convince them. But I would take them around West Point and show them the artifacts. And once I showed them these artifacts, it, it changed their mind pretty quickly because the evidence is so overwhelming. And what about the faculty at West Point? How did they take this? Well, I, initially, my bosses did not take it well. So I, I uh, argued that our new memorial room, I was in charge of the memorialization uh, committee, and I said that the Confederates should not go into this new memorial room which was going to have graduates from the War of 1812 through the War on Terror. And we, we lost 100 graduates killed at West Point in the Wars on Terror. So we needed a way to memorialize that. So I argued that Confederates shouldn't go in there. But my boss, the, the superintendent at the time, and the senior leader said, no, we want to bring people together. I said, you can't do that because Lee tried to destroy his, or these, these Confederates tried to destroy their country, abrogated their oath, fought against their country for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. But I failed initially because they were raised on this lost cause myth too. The younger faculty I had more luck with and the students I had more luck with, but some of the older white men like me, they had a tough time coming to grips with this. So you questioned your own belief in Robert E. Lee as a hero of the South when you were teaching at West Point and you began to uncover the documentation. Is that correct? Yes, I, I did. I, I had stopped worshiping him, I think, but I still identified as a white Southern gentleman. But when I saw the archives, when I saw the history of slavery, when I started looking at the history of slavery too, just the stench of immorality on that institution, that also changed me because you know I grew up thinking that slavery wasn't quite that bad. 
it was worse than anything we could imagine. My kids are married now and I'm hoping to have grandkids soon. But in the slave era, white men's first sexual experience was with an enslaved woman or girl. And then they would have children with them. And then those children, they would sell their own children and grandchildren. So it was that haunting immorality of slavery combined with the evidence I found, which just made me, I had to change. You certainly did. Have there been any adverse reactions to your book? Oh, yes. So first, when I was at West Point, I mean, I certainly had an enormous amount of pressure from both the Army and West Point to not publish about these things during the Trump administration and even before that, because the Army wasn't ready to handle it, particularly about the Army bases that are named after Confederates. Since then, it's been much more positive. But um, in fact, six years ago, I did a video on the cause of the Civil War, and I got death threats to my West Point email address. Absolutely. And I still get hostile emails and Twitter. And in fact, I, I tend to post on Tuesday, uh, one of the trolls that writes me uh, a horrible letter about how terrible I am or how I'm crazy or don't know what I'm talking about. So yes, there are Americans who don't believe this, but I am hardened by the fact that over the course of my teaching about this over the last 10 years, that it is a much more positive now and much more understanding of the true nature of slavery and the true nature of the Confederacy and Lee than it ever was just 10 years ago. How did you come to write this book? And tell us a bit about your process. Are you a writer who researches first? Do you write daily, certain amount of hours every day? Every writer wants to know the process. Well, I think I found my voice first. And I found my voice, Kitty, by when I was at West Point and I was a head of the history department, I would write speeches. Um, and I probably gave 20 or 30 speeches a year, maybe 40 speeches a year, 10 minute to 12 minute. And I would write all those out. And often they were about promotions or uh, some other uh, people leaving for the year, new people coming, all these things that happened in the army. And so I started to develop my voice, which was writing in speeches for myself. And I tried to sort of took that over into my book, which is to write in a conversational tone and to write stories to create larger stories. So I love stories. And I tried to find the stories that best articulated the purpose of my book. I always think of history as storytelling with a purpose using evidence. So I had been writing about this for 10 or 15 years prior to that. And I had some great stories, but I did have to go research certain ones. So I wrote a book proposal, like 60 pages where I knew I was going to do this. Plus I'd given a speech like this at Washington and Lee, and I knew it worked. And I wrote the book maybe in eight or nine months. And I, I wasn't teaching at the time I was doing this. So it gave me uh, a lot of time. So I would write in the mornings, researching as I went along, but I had much of the research done. I'd been writing about this so much, but many of the stories I had to go research individually as I was writing. And did you start out with an agent? I noticed that you were published by St. Martin's Press. I did. I did start out with an agent. I had published four books um, through Simon & Schuster with this agent. And Eric has been my agent for those four books that that he did such a great job with. That was the history, the West Point history of World War II, of American Revolution, and the Civil War. So we had done that previously as a group, and so I did what came to him with that. And he really helped me in a way shape it so that it was ready for for a publisher. And then, of course, you know, as you know, you've done so well so many times. He looked at it in St. Martin's Press. I had a great editor there, Charlie Spicer, who really saw the potential in it and, and helped me turn that into a reality. Have you noticed a difference in sales north and south? Has there been a regional divide? 
That's a great question. I don't know. I, I don't really get, I haven't really gotten that information. I'm going to go ask my publisher now if there <laughs> has been. But what I have been happy about is that it's been steadily selling. Uh, it hasn't really gone down that much. You know, this came out in January of last year. So it has been steadily selling, uh, not bestseller level, but still steadily selling. And I continue to get more people that ask me questions on email, more opportunities for speaking. You know, and one of the things that I did that was different in this book is most historians are know-it-alls. You know, they want to tell their story, but not let themselves be a part of it. And I think what I wanted to do is was use my own story to tell a larger story. And I found that it worked because I gave the speech at Washington Lee in Lee Chapel with the recumbent statue of Lee framing me. And I got such a positive reaction from the all white audience. And that gave me the confidence to know that I think I had a way of telling a story using me as the anchor for it rather than just the straight history. Well, the combination of your personal experience, nobody else could have written this book. It really is peculiar and unique. And I mean peculiar in a very positive way to you. It is your life story coming from Virginia, coming as a religious believer in Robert E. Lee, a Southerner, a military man, and you really came around full circle. Slavery is our greatest sin. And I think that's one reason the country is afraid to face it head on. No, I totally agree. In fact, you can see that in the South. There are great civil rights museums throughout the South now. There is no museum that just covers slavery. There's one being built in Charleston, but nowhere is there a, a museum that I know of that just covers the enslaved era. It is our great shame, and we are afraid to face it. You're absolutely right. Your book gives the best argument for changing the names of military bases from Confederate so-called heroes. Has that changed since your book? Has there been a movement to remove the names? There has been, and, and uh, it's been amazing to me. In fact, you know, at the last National Defense Authorization Act of 2021, and really I think this predates my book, but they passed this law to rename the Army bases. So that law has been passed. A supermajority overrode Trump's veto. Trump vetoed it mainly because it was going to change these base names. And now there is a commission to rename them. In fact, I'm the vice chair of that commission that will rename them. It's the great honor of my life, Kitty, to be able to be a part, I get goosebumps thinking about it, that I get to be a part of, uh, uh, to, to change the Army uh, and West Point and these institutions that I was a part of that I love so much, that I believe in so greatly. I, I love my country and I love the Army, but we can and should be better. And changing these names to name them after real American heroes and not those who chose treason to preserve slavery is just such a huge honor for me. How far along are you in this effort? Well, we've been meeting since March. Our chair is uh, Vice Admiral uh, Michelle Howard, one of the great leaders in American history, really. And so we we are, uh, are, I mean, I can't really talk much about it, except to say that we are due to provide a recommendation to Congress by the end of 2022, and the Secretary of Defense is supposed to execute in 2023. So we got to get down to business here soon. So this means that it has already passed Congress that these bases will be renamed, that the Confederate names will be taken off and it will be renamed. And your commission is set to put forward the new names. Is that correct? That's correct. 
That's real progress. That must make you feel very proud as a result of your book. Well, I, again, I certainly do not, will not take credit for that, but I do appreciate being a part of this and being a part of something that I think is important and that the American people now think is important. I mean, I think that the most important thing about this is that the American people through its elected representatives passed the law and then not today only did they pass it, they overrode the only veto by President Trump with a supermajority of senators and, and congressmen as well to do this. So I was incredibly heartened that the American people did this. And you know, Kitty, that Churchill once said that you can count on the American people to do the right thing after they've exhausted all other opportunities. And, <laughs> and in, in, this, in this case, they have indeed, we, we have been working at this issue of race for so long. And we have so far to go. I don't say that we don't. We do have so far to go. But this is one thing. Changing these base names is not going to end racism in America, but it's the start. Churchill also said that a lie flies halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on. And the same thing about racism and slavery. I think one reason people avoid it is that it's our ugliest face and we don't want to see it. We don't want to face it. I think that's true. The, The thing is, though, is we Americans, we're not a fragile people. We're just not that fragile. We can handle the truth. In fact, the truth makes us a more empathetic and better people. That's what it does is by facing this. We can handle it. I certainly handled it. And I know plenty of other people that grew up in the segregated era or grew up with ancestors that owned people. I mean, it's just the most horrific system. And, And again, not all white Southerners believe this. And remember that 4 million people in the South were enslaved people. So it was not just a society that had slaves. It was a slave society. Every part of that society did this. And there were 4 million uh, enslaved people. And enslaved people were at the highest price they'd ever brought in 1860. This system wasn't going away. But that's why we fought this civil war. And the good guys won. The bad guys, the evil guys lost. And we now have a better system because of that. But segregation, uh, something other than slavery, but like slavery, occurred in the end of the 19th and early 20th century. That segregated system is something we also need to look at, not just the victory in the civil rights movement, but the horror where 5,000 black men and women were lynched, often with genital mutilation, burning, uh, flaying of skin. It was just so awful. These things occurred in our past and we have to engage with them or we are not going to get over it. Why do you think that President Johnson was so lenient when it came to Robert E. Lee? If I had to, to put the most racist presidents on a scale of one to whatever, I would put Johnson the most racist and then Woodrow Wilson next. This is Andrew Johnson we're talking about the most racist president that we've ever had. And he thoroughly believed in white supremacy. He said it over and over again. So he was against traitors, but but was not necessarily against any equality among human beings. And Johnson wanted to try Lee as a traitor for a while, but by 1868 and Christmas of 1868, he granted amnesty to all Confederates. So Lee was, remember, a pardon is for one person, amnesty is for a group. And so all of them were finally granted amnesty in Christmas of 1868. But Lee never got over his belief in racial superiority of the white race. 
uh, his belief that in fact, all uh, black people should be ethnically cleansed and sent out of the state of Virginia and that they should not have the vote and they were only fit to be the laboring class. So he was absolutely not for reconciliation if it meant equality in any form. I was stunned to read in your book that Lee found the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, a savage and brutal policy. It pinned my ears back too, Kitty. And when we start getting black soldiers, the United States Colored Troops, USCT, the prisoner of war system stops because Lee and his army refused to accept black soldiers as prisoners of war and were massacring them on the battlefield. And so one of the reasons why there are all these prisoners of war camps and so many U.S. soldiers die in Southern prisoner of war camps is because Lee and Jefferson Davis refused to accept black prisoners of war. And so, you know, if you look at this, his belief system is so clear with that. And when I found that same quote, I mean, it just took my breath away because here he clearly is stating that he is fighting for his social system that is just clearly means slavery. And when it says fear of black male pollution, that's saying I fear black men raping white women. When, of course, what it really was happening was white men raping enslaved women. Uh, as a, a par for the course. Remember, every baby they had uh, was enslaved, which meant more money for those white slave owners. I mean, the level of, of immorality, of the, the just horror of that system is just every American has to come to grips that we fought a war. But, but we also should remember that the United States Army, my army, fought that war with 200,000 black soldiers and ended the scourge of race-based slavery. How do you follow this monumental book, and I mean monumental in that it's myth-breaking. How do you follow this book with your next book? So the, the commission is taking up a lot of my time right now, but I'm working on a book proposal. But I do have a story that I've talked about in the book that really interests me. And that is in 1971, Richard Nixon came to West Point and ordered the military academy, you know, the place that I love, to put a Confederate monument on our sacred I would ground. Say, you put that in your book. But it's it's a it's a much larger story. And and then the black cadets, in fact, uh, rose up against this. And one of the most successful protest movements in the history of the military was against the president of the United States. But what it also showed is a time and a place in 1971-72 where black activism within the military changed the military for the better, created a system that it's not that it would work perfectly, but it was a time that we engaged accurately, we engaged truthfully and forcefully to try to make a better army, a better institution, a better America. And it was because of the activism of these Black cadets. And it, it permeated throughout the entire army. And so I want to tell their story because I love telling stories that illuminate things that we don't think about in America. And that 1971, which is the nadir of time in the army, we had race riots, heroin addiction, but we also have this glorious portion where we have um, black cadets and officers fighting for a more equal place in American society and winning. They did win. They kept the Nixon Confederate monument or whatever he wanted to put up. They kept it from being established. Is that they correct? They kept it from being established. And it changed so many things at West Point. Um, it also followed for the first time. They wanted to show they weren't part of the white establishment. And so they forced the Academy and the Army and the Department of Defense to put on a concert called the Concert for the Blood to raise money for sickle cell anemia research. So it was in Mikey Stadium, our football stadium. They had this huge concert, the first time Black people from the surrounding area in the Hudson Valley had ever been to West Point. And they bring in, to be the acts for this, Stevie Wonder and the Supremes. 
And it's all done by these cadets. And they had no idea that what they were doing had any import. But in fact, what they did, these 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds changed the army. They changed the world. And it's that hope that we have of when people take it upon themselves to refuse racism, to refuse to accept something, even if it's from the president of the United States, and they were willing to fight against the president for something they believed in so strongly. So I think that's what the story I want to tell next, because just like you, Kitty, I love great stories. Since we have first gathered around stones as human beings around a fire, we have told stories to one another to influence and to think about ourselves. And like you, I want to tell stories that move people, that inspire people, and that make them think about their country and their military in ways that they don't right now. There you go. (laughs) I think you've been blessed. Whoever you've lost as a result of this book, you certainly married well. Your wife comes through in this book as a red, white, and blue champion. And she wasn't always on your side. No, she's so honest, Kitty. And I grew up a liar. You've got to remember that these are all lies. So being a Southern gentleman meant status and meant power, but it also meant living a lie. It also was, it's sexist. So all of these things are, are, are the terrible aspects of this white Southern gentleman mystique that leads people to very unhappy lives. So I've been a work in progress, but she has been particularly honest and forthright in helping me see through this Uh, And she is the hero of the book. It's dedicated to her. And it's dedicated to her because she helped me see the lie that I was living and helped me to become a better human being. And for that, I will always be eternally grateful. That was author Ty Sidgley speaking with veteran biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about Sidgley's book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, published by St. Martin's Press in January 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on September 27th of this year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye.